Well, Job chapter 7 is hard questions, uh, laments and questions. It's going to alternate between the two. But Job in chapter 7 has a little bit more hope, and I want to make sure I qualify that. You're not going to see a whole lot of hope, but it's more than he had in chapter 3. Because in chapter 3, Job wanted to die. And in chapter 7, it seems like he doesn't want to die anymore. And that can be a major step for someone who's in grief and in pain and mourning, just to go from a point of not wanting to die, not wanting to erase your, the night of your conception and the night of your birth off of the calendar forever, and moving to a point where now, even though you're still questioning God, you've moved from a point of wanting to die and never wanting to exist to, God, what are you doing to me and why? And can you give me a reprieve from this is a big step. And I, and I don't want to assume for a moment that uh, those of you who have walked into this room or those of you who may listen to this later, that that couldn't be a major step for you because we know uh, as we've been seeing veterans come back off the battlefield, we've been watching the rate of teen suicide, uh, we know that there can be a struggle just right there to even know if my existence matters, to know if, God, if there is a God, if he even cares about me, and if he does, then why does he allow what happens into my life? And uh, we've all probably wrestled with questions like that, or we will at some point. And so he's beginning to ponder the possibility of relief from his illness, from his loss, from all he's gone through. Uh, I put this in my notes for what it's worth. I'm no expert on grief, but I think we can get a hint here that even in the depth of the illness, pain, and loss, the emotional pain in Job's heart, he's beginning to wrestle with that grief and pain, and he's beginning even more so to press into God. And I think that's a step if you are in the grieving process to go from a point where maybe you don't want to live anymore and maybe you're just kind of speaking up into the air or anybody who will listen or maybe it's just to yourself to begin to press into God even with your questions can be a really good thing. So Job is going to move from uh, his comforters to God, and he says these words as he begins with a, a lament. It's chapter 7, verse 1. He says, Is not man forced to labor? If you have an ESV, NIV, it says, forced into hard service on earth. Are not his days like, whenever you see the word like, it's a simile, it's a comparison, like the days of a hired man? As a slave who pants for the shade, and as a hired man who eagerly waits for his wages, so am I, so Job uses a comparison and now applies it to himself, so am I allotted months of vanity and nights of trouble are appointed me. In the second part of his speech in chapter 7, Job begins to address God directly and he is reaching beyond his despair into reconciliation with God. Job's going to give us some comparisons and the first comparison he gives, and he's Speaking of mankind, but applying this to himself is that he's, he says man is forced into labor or hard service on the earth. Sometimes life can feel like hard service. <laughs> this particular Hebrew word does speak of forced labor, and it can speak of someone going into military service who didn't want to. And uh, back in the day, it's not true today, but back in the day there was a draft for military service, 
And so there was a war, the Vietnam War, and you may not have wanted to go into war, but if you got drafted, you were forced to go into war. And in ancient days and even today, there's such a thing as forced labor. And so for whatever reason, you may end up in a situation where you're forced into a labor situation that you didn't want to be in. This is 1 Kings 5, 13 and 14. It says, Now King Solomon levied uh, forced laborers from all Israel, and forced laborers numbered 30,000 men. He drafted them into work on the temple. He sent them to Lebanon, did he, 10,000 a month in relays. They were in Lebanon a month and two months at home. And Adoniram was over the forced laborers. 1 Kings 5, 13 and 14. So people from Israel, 30,000 of them had to leave home for a month. They'd return home for two months and go back into Lebanon for a month. And it was, it was categorized as forced labor. And being, a ho- being away from home is difficult for those who may be on the battlefield, for those who have to find work. Some of you have had to search for work out of state. I even know people who have found work out of the country And uh, it's because they couldn't find work here, so they had to leave home, some of them for months, some of them for years. And Job says, my life feels like a life of forced labor. I want you to remember that prior to Job's uh, catastrophic uh, situation, he was a very prosperous man. And what did he have? He had many, many servants. And now all of a sudden, he gets to be put into the shoes of a person who may be a day laborer or maybe a servant. And I'm going to put this as a minor point, but I think it's worth at least mentioning that in Job's trial, he begins to see life through other people's eyes. See, before he was a wealthy landowner, he had been blessed by God, he was prosperous. Uh, in chapter one, we were introduced to all the animals he had. He had 10 children. He had many servants. He had a lot of property. He was a blessed man, the, the, one of the most blessed men of the East. And he was a godly man, but he was a blessed man. And now in his trial, he has to now experience life as though he were a hired servant or a slave. And sometimes when we've hit some lows in our lives, we can't really relate to what somebody else is going through, but then we hit a low, and then all of a sudden we get to see the world through their eyes. And maybe we were a bit callous to their situation. Like, well, okay, that's what they do for a living, but too bad. And it, it, it could be a number of different areas. But all of a sudden now, when you're having to live through that lens yourself, it might change your perspective a little bit. And I think this is a minor point, but I mention it just because I think it's apropos that um, sometimes when you go through some pain and trial and someone else then comes to you and you've experienced it, now you can say, wow, I have a little bit more pity, a little bit more compassion. Job feels like a slave in forced labor, uh, forced into a situation he doesn't want to be in. And if you've ever been there before, and if you live long enough, you will be. We all, a lot of us, end up in situations where it's not what we would have chosen, but there we are. You've all been there before, right? And you might say to yourself, maybe you've been on a job, and you're like, Lord, this is not where I want to be. Maybe you've had a health situation, and you've said, Lord, this is not where I want to be. I was forced into this. (laughs) 
And God's still sovereign, but it's not what you would want. You know, how much of life actually are you in a perfect situation, though? Where you're always where you want to be. It's just everything's clicking. It's perfect. Life is good. There's some snapshots. And when those snapshots happen, I would encourage you to take a picture of that moment. Because those moments seem to be somewhat few and far between. And I think that's the nature of the fallen world that we live in. We don't always feel good. Our situations are not always perfect. Just when we might be feeling good, then somebody around us doesn't feel good, and then we have to encourage them. And life can seem like a cycle in this way. Job says, and are, are, are not our days like the days of a hired man? That's the second simile, a comparison to how Job feels. And a hired man in these days, just like today, was a worker who would be a hireling for the day. So basically, you would be in the marketplace with a bunch of different individuals, and you would hope that someone would hire you for the day's work. And you never knew what the work was going to be, and you might get a very meager wage for the work, and you really desperately needed to be paid at the end of the day so you could buy food for your family that night so you could provide a dinner. So sometimes, uh, even the book of James brings this up, that sometimes the day laborer would get hired, they would work hard all day, only to find that the person would stiff them or pay half of the agreed-upon amount. And all of a sudden now, you've got half of what you thought, and maybe you had a bill to pay, and maybe you, know, you needed to restock the refrigerator, and all of a sudden, it's, it falls way short, and there's nothing you can do because you're stuck because that person lied to you or whatever. And Job feels that way as well. He feels like a, a, a day, a hireling, or the days of a hired man, 7-1. And then he says, as a slave, a slave is an eved. It's one who serves his master, whatever his master says he does. As a slave, this is how I feel, says Job, who pants for the shade. Now, I think we've all enjoyed the rain in Southern California, and it's been nice, and it's been cooler than normal, but the temperatures are beginning to rise. Oh, Lord, turn it around again, <laughs> right? Give us another cooling trend. But when it's a hot day and you're working in a hot environment, sometimes just a little bit of shade can make all the difference. And if you've ever been outside working and maybe there's a little bit of shade and you get 10 minutes there and a little breeze blows, you're like, oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you, right? I mean, this is how Job feels. He says, I just want a little bit of shade because as a slave who pants for the shade, as a hired man who eagerly waits for his wages, so am I. So you've seen the similes now. So am I lauded months of vanity and nights of trouble they're appointed to me. I have found myself, and the best way I can describe my life right now is in these kinds of comparisons. And it's not fun, and I don't like it, and it's months of vanity, verse 3. It's nights of trouble. There's an extra-biblical source that says that Job's trouble lasted seven years. Um, we don't know if that's actually accurate. But we do know this, that Job's trouble, including all of his physical ailments and the aftermath of his losses, lasted at least months, and we would assume many months. And so... You know, if you've ever been through something before that's hard and difficult and painful, and maybe you can't sleep at night, 
If it goes on for days or even weeks, that seems like an eternity sometimes. But imagine months. Or imagine if this extra biblical source is correct and the pain of Job went on for seven years. That is a long time to suffer. And Job says, I've had many times like this. I have had New Living Translation. I've been assigned months of futility, long and weary nights of misery. Remember, Job had lost so much. Sometimes when we go through stuff, we replay it over and over and over again. And Job says, this is like the inheritance I've received. And uh, one writer sees a hint that maybe Job thinks, am I paying for something that my forefathers did wrong? Am I, am I paying the price for the sins of my father, fathers? That's not biblical, but again, Job may be thinking that way. And in many ways, we too are paying for the sins of our fathers in one sense. We don't, we don't pay for them in the sense that they're going to answer for their own sin, but we are reeling from the sin of a man, and his name is Adam. Let's go to Romans chapter 5 for a second. Romans 5. I just want to show you a verse that kind of answers this dilemma of the suffering of mankind. And in some ways, Job represents all of mankind because the suffering that we go through doesn't make sense. And sometimes we can track it, sometimes we can't. But we are in a fallen world, and Romans 5.12 says these words. It says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, Romans 5.12, and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, it's true that one man fell, a man and a woman actually fell. And through that sin, notice Romans 5.12, it says, just as through the one man sin entered into the world and death, because we die because of sin, death through sin. And so death spread like a disease to all of us but we're not innocent because all of us have sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. Flip over to Romans 6, look at verse 23. Romans 6, 23 says, the wages of sin is death, but here's the good news. The free gift, and note that if you haven't uh, highlighted that before, but the free gift of God, it's from God, is what? It's eternal life through the last Adam, who is Christ Jesus our Lord. So what we deserve is death, and that's ultimately second, the second death, or to be separated from God for all eternity, but God gives a free gift, and that free gift is eternal life, and it is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're in a fallen world, back to the book of Job, and Job is experiencing a taste of that fallen world. Not all suffering makes sense, as we uh, mentioned earlier, and Job is reeling. He says, Job 7, verse 4, When I lie down, I say, When shall I arise? But the night continues, and I'm continually tossing until dawn. Wasn't there a song? Tossing and turning, tossing and turning all night. Wasn't that a song? Some of you are like, I have no idea, Pastor Michael. And the way you sang it, who would know that was a song? Anyway. Have you ever, some of you who are coffee drinkers, have you ever done this before? So maybe you have a big day the next day and you say, I can have an afternoon latte or a cup of coffee. And you had it and then you had a lot on your mind. That combination usually is a bad combination. You can end up tossing and turning all night. 
And so, you know, if you've ever had a night like that, you look at the clock and it's an hour later, but you don't think you've slept. And then another hour goes by and it's like click, click, click. And every sound is magnified. And if you have a spouse, they're over there. <laughs> and you're like, <laughs> and it's every sound is accentuated and and, you know, one writer was trying to describe these nights for Job, and he said, imagine that you had all the pain in your body that Job had. Uh, I was talking, Paul mentioned he had a boil one time in his life, and it was just a boil on your arm. Anyway, and he said, I can't imagine having boils from the bottom of my feet to the top of my head. And you know when, at nighttime, when everything's accentuated, imagine every ache and pain that Job must have felt. Um, everything's accentuated when you can't sleep. And when sleep flees from you, you desperately want it, but you can't seem to get it. And so Job is saying, when I lie down, and remember, he's in all this misery, and so at some point he gets in the bed, right? And he lies down, and he figures, well, maybe I'll have a long night of relief. Sometimes in life, we just say, if I just go to bed, maybe this day will just be over, right? Pull the covers up over my head. Okay, tomorrow's a new day, right? And then Job can't sleep. He says, but the night continues. And he starts to say, after he's lied, laid down, when shall I get up? I'm continually tossing until the dawn, until the rising of the sun He's so fed up with tossing that his mind starts to move toward the time he will give, get up. I remember uh, some years ago when the, the churches had their, uh, the, this church merged with another church in 2007. And the night before I was going to preach that service when we were all together, I had a cup of coffee. I was studying and I went to bed at a decent hour and I tossed and turned all night long. And I remember a friend of mine, his wife said, Pastor Michael's not going to sleep tonight. And I, oh, I'm going to sleep. It'll be fine. Well, I had that cup of coffee and uh, that next morning. And the Lord always shows up when I'm tired. But I was so done by the end of that service. And maybe sometimes God puts us in that situation so we have to rely upon him. But I want you to imagine Job in his bed with no relief in sight. The night passes so slowly. He becomes conscious of, conscious of every noise, every ache, every pain in his body. He says, my flesh, verse 5, is clothed with worms and a crust of dirt. My skin hardens and runs. Job has hard scabs that have cr crusted around the sores on his skin, and then they break off and ooze. His skin is either hard or painfully raw. One writer says, the vivid description gives us some insight into the multiple physical illnesses of Job. Fever, sleeplessness, delirium, skin ulcers, running sores that are infested with worms. He looks in the mirror and goes, ah! Can that really be me? Is that me that I'm looking back at? What are these things doing in my skin? And Job he may be dealing with something like maggots in his skin. And he says, he says, my days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to an end, would you notice, without hope. Now, even though Job's uh, cry is more positive than chapter three when he wants to die, he still is saying he has no hope. 
And when you have no hope, man, life is hard. If you've ever run into a person with, who's feeling hopeless, it's a tough spot to be in. It's been said that if you have Jesus in your life, you have, you have endless hope. But if you're without Christ, you have a hopeless end. And a lot of people who have lived for the things that people say should give you hope, well, their hope meter hasn't risen. Because you're not going to find hope in those things that the world says you'll find them in. And, and here's the irony. Job says, the, the nights go by so slow in my suffering, and yet my life seems to be going by so fast. How's that possible? Well, in our pain, it seems like everything moves slow because we can't wait for the pain to be over. But as the painful days go on, our life is still passing us by. And so there's an irony here where Job is saying, it's so slow and yet so fast. And we want to take advantage of our lives because in Jesus Christ, we have hope. But Job uses this image, and I don't know a whole lot about this weaver shuttle, but a shuttle is a tool designed to neatly and compactly store a holder that carries the thread of a weft yarn while weaving with a loom. Shuttles are thrown or passed back and forth through the shed between the yarn threads of the wrap in order to weave in the weft. Soon the cloth is finished and the thread is cut to separate the cloth from the loom. And as that moves so quickly, Job says, that's, that's what my days are like. They're swifter than a weaver's shuttle that goes back and forth. And they come to an end with no hope. Each day that is lost flies by. Can I just say to you, if things are relatively good for you right now, enjoy every day that you have. Count your blessings one by one because you don't know what is ahead of you and you don't know if you've got a ton of good days or more challenging days. But if you have good days now, celebrate those days. Don't just let them pass you by and take them for granted. God bless you and your family. This is one of the paradoxes of suffering, says one writer, that it can be at the same time a slow pain and a fast running away of life itself. I want to speed it up, but I want to slow it down. In the bad times, I want to speed them up. In the good times, I want to slow them down. But I find that I am impotent to do either. I can't speed up the bad times, and I can't slow down the good times. So I have to live in the moment for what God has given me. And if you live your whole life, in other words, if you're in a good moment and you're always looking to the next thing instead of enjoying the good moment, you're going to let a lot of good moments pass you by. So I would just encourage you to count your blessings. Job thinks his days will end without hope, but will they? Have you guys read the end of the book? His, his days end up with a lot of hope. He sees multiple generations. God blesses him richly, but right now in his grief, he can't see hope. And if you can't see hope tonight in where you are, my prayer for you is that you will find hope again. And the way that you find hope again is you find Jesus again, or Jesus finds you. I'm going to say that one more time. If you've lost hope tonight, I pray you'll find hope again. And you'll find hope 
because Jesus Christ is the face of hope. Hope does not need to be elusive from each one of us because Jesus Christ is our hope. Turn over to Job 13 for a second. Look at Job 13. And even in Job's pain, as he's asking tough questions and stuff, every now and then you'll see a glimmer of light. And here's what Job says. He says, in Job 13, 15, he says, Though he, God, slay me, I will what? I will hope in him. Job 13, 15. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. (laughs) This also will be my salvation. For a godless man may not come before his presence. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. I want you to turn to Psalm 71, just the next book to your right, Psalm 71, just for some encouragement about taking refuge in the Lord as your hope. Psalm 71, look at verse 1. Psalm 71, 1 reads, In you, O Lord, Psalm 71, 1, I have taken refuge, let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. 71, 3. Be to me a rock of habitation to which I may continually come. You have given commandments to save me. You are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O my God, out of the hand of the wicked man, out of the grasp of the wrongdoer and the ruthless man. For you are my hope, O Lord God. You are my confidence from my youth. Psalm 71, 1 through 5. So Job has complained to the Lord. Uh, He has given his uh, complaint, his lament, back to Job 7. And now he is going to turn and he's going to talk to God about remembering him. This is Job 7, 7. He says, remember the imperative signals that Job is now addressing God directly. Remember that my life is but breath, ruach, the word for spirit. My eye will not again see good. Lord, remember that I am so temporary. Could you lift this from me? Because I don't think I'm going to see good days again. And in our trials, when things have gone astray and it's difficult, sometimes we ask this question and we may say this. I don't think I'm ever going to see a normal day again. Whatever a normal day is, right? But what was our normal day? Things that we took for granted, getting up in the morning, driving in our car, going to work, whatever. And then something happens and and life gets difficult and all of a sudden we might say, I don't think I'm going to see a good day again. I don't know if I'm ever going to enjoy life the way I used to enjoy life. And let me just say to you, if you're a Christian tonight, you will see good days again. Do you know why? Because God is good and one day, even if your trial lasts the rest of your life, and I pray it doesn't, You're going to see good days again because you're going to see the face of God. Amen? Amen. See, what's ahead of us is good. There's going to be a city that has no need of the light of the sun because the lamb's going to be in the midst of that city and the curse is going to be reversed and we will look upon him who was pierced for us. But God promises, Romans 8, 28, to work, how many? All things together for good. Now, Job didn't know that verse yet, but... He wondered, is my eye ever going to see good days again? And and he had reason to say that. He had lost virtually everything. He moves from a lament to a petition. And I would say to you that sometimes when we're crying about life, we need to move from laments to petitions. 
I don't know why this happens. I don't know why I'm stuck on the 91 right now. I'm supposed to be in an appointment 15 minutes ago. I don't know why the people in the office are like this. I don't know why she's like that. I don't know why that neighbor does that every single day. Why do they park their car in front of my mailbox when the mailman leaves me that note and it's not one of my cars and this is the reason I couldn't get out of my truck and deliver the mail to your mailbox. And this is just a little minor rant on the part of Pastor Michael because apparently male people can't leave their truck anymore to get around cars parked on the street, right? And we go down our list and we're, and we're complaining. And then, and, then this, and then, and have you ever been in the midst of a rant and just said, oh, Lord. Oh, Lord, forgive me. I'm supposed to be praying for my neighbor and loving my neighbor as I love, what's that verse saying? As I love myself. When I park in front of his house, things are cool. He should understand. We got people over. We got things going on. It's cool, right? And so Job says, I don't know if I'm going to see good days again, Lord. Would you remember? Job says, uh, something that James said relatively close. He says, you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. James 4, 14 through 17 can I submit to you that there's an implication in that verse, please hear what I'm about to say, that sometimes we put good that we should do off until tomorrow because we think we can do it tomorrow. And the good that we know to do, if at all possible within our power, we should do now. You know, a lot of people talk about plans for the future. I'll do this and this and this and this and then, and then I'll get to the good that I think God wants me to do. Well, maybe you will if the Lord wills it. But you better make sure that you've wrapped that prayer in Lord willing. Because I've heard some people approach me with some business ideas and the like, and, and they've said, we're going to do this, this, and this so we can free ourselves up for ministry. And I'm like, well, okay, that sounds good. But first of all, I pray that that's actually God's will for you. And then I pray that whatever your 10 or 20 year plan is, that you actually get to the ministry after that 10 or 20 year plan. And also, I don't know if you're going to be here in 20 years. You may or you may not be. Just something to consider. Job says, my life is like a breath. It's here today and gone tomorrow. The eye of him who sees me will behold me no longer. Your eyes, he's speaking to God, will be on me, but I will not be. Verse 8, Job says, Lord, when you look for me, since your eyes are on man, if I'm dead, you won't find me. You seem to have your eye on me extra these days. Well, if things end this way, if I die, you won't be able to do that anymore. Have you ever found that your prayer begins to move in a bit of manipulation? You ever prayed a manipulative prayer? Okay, God, uh, if, you know, if it keeps going this way, I'm not going to be able to serve you the way I used to be able to serve you, just to update you on uh, current events. If, if, if things keep going this way, if you keep doing things this way, this is what's going to happen, God. 
case you needed to know that. <laughs> Imagine God's up there. Oh, wow, I didn't realize. You're so smart to put those dots together the way that you have. Thank you. Gabriel, did you hear that? Michael's figured it all out. Wow. The eye of him who sees me will behold. You won't see me anymore. Your eyes will be on me, but I won't be. You won't be able to find me because I'm dead, because you allowed all this stuff in my life. Wait a minute. In chapter 3, Job, you wanted to die. It sounds like you don't want to die anymore. You know, when we have moments where we are so desperate that we think our life is worth nothing, hold on. Don't give up because in a couple of days, a couple of hours, and sometimes in a couple of minutes, you'll change your mind. And I know that a lot of us, or we may know somebody who's been in a very desperate situation and they thought their life meant nothing and the devil may have been right there to say, that's right, you have no value. But it didn't take Job very long to all of a sudden pray a kind of a manipulative prayer that he wants to live now. He went from erase it off the calendar, the night of my conception, the day, the birth announcement, get it all, put it in the shredder. There go my glasses. And now, you know, if you take me out, God, you'll be looking for me to have lunch and we won't, I won't be around. I can't meet you at Coco's. I know, silly illustration, what was the uh, Dom DeLuise and Burt Reynolds? What was the movie? Oh, uh, Dom DeLuise is trying to kill him during the movie. Burt Reynolds doesn't want to live. And so uh, he's, he's hired Dom DeLuise to take him out. But then he realizes he wants to live. And so he goes out into the ocean and he's going to drown himself. And uh, he's out in the ocean and all of a sudden he doesn't want to die. I want to live. I want to live. So he starts swimming for the shore. Send me a wave. I want to live. I want to live. And so he starts negotiating with God. Lord, if you let me live, I'll give you 75% of everything I make. <laughs> and he gets a little closer. The end's called the end. And then he gets a little closer to the shore and he says, God, 50%, I'll give you 50% if you let me live. And then 25%. And then he finally ends up on the shore. Thank you, Lord. And Dom DeLuise doesn't know he's changed his mind, so he's got like a knife and he's trying to kill him. And he's so tired he can't run from him. I want to live. No, you told me to kill you. I want to live. <laughs> Illustration. When a cloud vanishes, it is gone. So he who goes down to Sheol or the grave does not come up. Now sometimes when we run into our Jehovah's Witness friends, they love to quote from Ecclesiastes and Job to say, see, when you go to the grave, nobody comes up again. There, there's not going to be any kind of resurrection or that kind of thing. They believe in a resurrection, but they believe in soul sleep. And they use... Uh, verses in Job and Ecclesiastes where the writer is expressing times of doubt and it's them speaking to God in a moment of despair. That's not where you want to get your theology. 
If you want good theology on whether or not to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, if you want to know if God is the God of the living and not the dead, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if you want to know if Moses and Elijah are still alive, if the saints are more alive than they've ever been in heaven, then read the rest of the Bible. Don't pull your verses from Job and Ecclesiastes. And if they come to your door and they begin to submit those arguments, remember what I'm saying to you. That these are moments of despair when someone has even lost some, some hope and perhaps even some faith. This is not theological uh, doctrine here. This is a person going through tough times. One writer called Job's comments here, Ecclesiastes on a rainy day. And if you've ever seen a big storm clouds coming in, it, they can see so, seem so ominous in the sky. They can seem like they'll hover there forever. And then a couple hours later, have you ever been there? All of a sudden the sun is out and all the clouds are gone. And you're like, where'd that cloud go? Well, Job says, my life is kind of like that. It's like a cloud that looks so incredible and then vanishes. And so is he who goes down to the grave. He won't come back up. But in Job 19, would you flip over there? Job does believe in the resurrection, and here's what he says, Job 19. Look, look at verses 25 and 26. He says, as for me, Job 19, 25, what's he say? I what? I know that my Redeemer lives. Job is a believer even in his pain. And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh, what? I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eye, eyes will see, and not another. My heart faints within me. I know my Redeemer lives. And even after my flesh is destroyed, from my flesh, which speaks of a resurrection, I will see God. But he says, in this moment, Job 7.10, the one who goes down to Sheol, he will not re return again to his house, nor will his place know him anymore. Job is not denying the resurrection, but he is speaking of the grave. When a loved one is buried, sadly, they are not coming back home as they used to. They are soon a memory, and sadly, even potentially forgotten. Job feels instinctively that he ought to matter, but everything about his suffering suggests that he doesn't. But as a believer, here's what I do know. I'm in a covenant with the living God, therefore my ultimate being cannot be transient. I'm going to live in one or of two places. I'm either going to end up to be with the Lord or I'm going to be separated from God. This is what the Bible teaches. You are going to live forever in one of two places. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. And yet Job feels so temporary. He might say something like this. If your eyes are on the sparrow, do you not see what I'm going through? Job is involved in what writer calls holy argumentation with God. You're the eternal God. You're watching over me. And yet shall I go to Sheol and never come back? From an ancient perspective, nobody returns from the grave, says one writer. But even Jesus, uh, it says, you will not allow his, your Holy One to uh, see decay, quoting from Psalm 16. 
It was impossible for death to hold Jesus, right? He was raised from the dead in the very history in which we are embedded. And Jesus said, because I live, you will live also. You are going to rise. Some will rise to a resurrection of life, John 5. Some will rise to a resurrection of condemnation. Can you imagine being in a resurrected body by the power of Jesus who calls people out of the graves and ending up in the line of the goats instead of the sheep? Do you know that's going to happen to people? There's a resurrection to life and a resurrection to judgment. And even the unbeliever will be resurrected, but it will be a resurrection to condemnation, not a resurrection to life. That is a, isn't that a weird thought? Because usually when we think of the resurrection, we think of believers being resurrected in their new bodies, glorified bodies. But imagine that the line breaks here and there's people going this way and they're the sheep on his right hand and the goats are on his left. And what does he say to the ones on his left? Depart from me, you who work iniquity, I never knew you. And then he warns that they're going to go into an eternal judgment. But the righteous will enter into life. Job is using the language of a believer all through this. He believes, but he's struggling. Therefore, he says, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. This is how deep his pain goes. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Eliphaz was trying to shush Job. Don't say that. Don't speak like that. But Job must preach his way toward the truth. Sometimes we got to work it out by talking through it, by journaling, by praying, by asking the Lord, by listening to sermons, we got to work through it. And often we work our way back to the gospel. And sometimes we take the long route home, like the prodigal, right? Got to end up in the pig pen. Okay, uh, uncle, 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 daddy. Start rehearsing speeches. I'm going home. You can pay me whatever the hired servants make, but I'm going home. If you come back home, your father will have open arms for you. The depths of his pain, spirit, soul, they go very deep. And we can't underestimate the depths of one's pain. Job's, he has more questions. He says, am I the sea or the sea monster that you set a guard over me? The sea, Yom, was a hostile god closely allied to the sea monster, Tanin, whom we met as Leviathan in verse, chapter 3, verse 8. We'll meet him again in chapter 41. Job is not referring to the sea or the ocean in general or any old sea creature. He speaks of the sea and the sea monster. Am I the sea or the sea monster of the deep? Protesting that, why is God so against me? Like, am I some sort of uh, combatant towards him? Am I a competitor that he shoots his gaze my way? as though I were a sea monster? He says, why do you set a guard over me? If I say, my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you frighten me with dreams, 14, and terrify me by visions. I, I say, finally, I'm going to hit the hay, and I fall into bed, and then I have nightmares about my losses and my pain and soldiers lining up to destroy me. Ever been there before? You, you try to find rest in your bed only to find nightmares. Have you ever been in twilight? Uh, you you kind of half awake, half asleep, 
and in a twilight state had some weird things happen. It, it just seems to be, I, I, I don't know how to make sense of all of that, but, but imagine all Job had to have rotating in his mind and finally he dozes off to sleep only to be wakened again by a terrifying vision that he believes God has sent his way so that my soul would choose suffocation, death rather than my pains. As we saw earlier, Job's nights were hard. In a picturesque image, says one writer, the word nepez, throat, usually translated soul or self, stands with strangling. During such a seizure, Job's throat would prefer that he choke to death, almost as if he's having a coughing fit on his bed. <laughs> and his throat begins to say, as though his soul was speaking, maybe you should just die right now. Maybe you should just suffocate. I waste away. I will not live forever. And then Job says, leave me alone, for my days are but a breath. If this is what it means for me to have your attention, leave me alone. Have you ever said that to somebody that you love? Leave me alone. Get out of my room. Parent might have responded, I own the house. This is not your room. It's my room. You get out. Well, could we revisit the things that I, I didn't mean it? I, never mind. Here, I'll pack you a suitcase. <laughs> Have you ever said to God, leave me alone? Ooh. Where do you have to be to voice those words at a very low place? I mean, most of the time we're saying, Lord, would you be with me? Most of the time we're saying, Lord, would you help me? But Job has gotten to that point where he's saying, leave me alone. My bones ache. I'm racked with pain. I'm transient. My life is a vapor. Would you back off? He senses that God has minimally allowed this in his life. Would you let me see a few good days? One writer compared what Job is going through to Big Brother and the citizens in Orwell's 1984, or if you guys saw the movie The Truman Show, was it uh, Jim, uh, Jim Carrey, where he's in this town and it's all just a movie, right? And he finally tries to escape from the movie, from the director. <laughs> I want out of here! We all love you, man! And all of America's watching his life and he thinks it's all real and they're all a bunch of actors. Well, Job's saying, could you just turn your gaze away? My suffering is too much. Am I on a show? Am I sh a show for the angels or what's going on? Job at the moment can find no meaning to his suffering. How is he to see God in light of all this? And let me ask you, how can you see God in your suffering when it doesn't make sense? The problem of evil can and does impact our view of God. But which way does the problem of evil move you? Away from God or towards God? If the problem of evil moves you away from God, can I just ask you, where are you going to go? Oh, that's it. Uh, I, that happened over here. I don't believe anymore. Okay, so where are you going? I'm going over here. Where's over here? I don't know, but it's over here. And what is over there? Well, 
A bunch of people mad at a being they don't believe in. But we're mad. I'm going to be over here mad with the other people. Who are you mad at? I, God. <laughs> have you ever, I mean, it sounds kind of funny, but have you ever talked to an atheist who's so angry at a being they don't believe in? They don't believe he exists, but they're mad. You're like, why are you so mad? You don't believe he exists? I know, but, but I'm mad. <laughs> oh, don't you think you're wasting a lot of energy being mad at a being you don't believe exists? Yeah, I'm, I'm writing books about that being, too, that doesn't exist. Really? So you're spending your life writing things against a being you don't exist, you don't think exists. I, I was in a locker room in a, a gym. There was a man that was sitting there. He looked a little bit dejected. I said, what's going on? How are you doing today? He goes, I'm not doing so well at all. I said, well, what's going on? He said, my marriage is coming to an end and it's not what I want. I said, I'm so sorry to hear that. I said, I deal with a lot of marriage. I'm a pastor. And he goes, oh, a pastor, huh? He goes, I just want you to know something. I'm a confirmed atheist. I said, a confirmed atheist? I've never met a, do you go through a, you get a special certificate for that? A confirmed atheist. He goes, I write articles against the Roman Catholic Church. And at, this was some years ago. There was a lot of abuse going on and you know, people had reason to be angry. And I said, wow, so you're a confirmed atheist. I said, how do you think the world came into existence? How do you think you got your eyes and your brain and your, what do you, how do you, well, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. How did all this come? I don't know. And in a moment that I'm just going to trust was the Holy Spirit, I said to him, you're not mad at God. You're mad at the church. And he looked up at me and he said, you're right. Just then, another man began walking up, and he was also a pastor. We're both handing this atheist our business cards. And I said, brother, the Lord has you surrounded at L.A. Fitness. Something's going on. There's usually not this many pastors at the gym. Now, he didn't fall on his knees and give his life to Jesus. But do you think that he's thought about that day? And Job says, well, what is man that you magnify him, that you're concerned about him? He's still talking to God. He's still a believer, but he's got questions. That you examine him every morning and try him every moment. Will you never turn your gaze away from me, nor let me alone until I swallow my spittle? Would you give me a moment to swallow my spit? Wow, that's something. What is man that you magnify him? Does that sound familiar to any of you? That's Psalm 8. When I consider the work of your fingers, the, the sun and moon and stars that you have ordained, what is man? That you're mindful of him, <coughs> of him, or the son of man, that you take thought of him. Yet you've made him a little lower than the angels, right? You've crowned him with glory and honor. But Job takes the rhythmic lines of a psalm, whether it existed at this time or not, in written form, I don't know for sure, and he turns them the opposite way. Whereas David is saying, it's humbling to me that you made the sun, moon, and stars and you care about man and you put him 
over the creation. But Job says, no, I don't like it that you take thought of me. I wish you'd stop thinking about me for a couple of hours. And so, we can, when we're going through tough times, we can turn positives into negatives. I don't know if you're there tonight, but you get some encouraging friends around you, like, cheer up, man! Look at that sunset! Yeah, but look, at there's a little bit of a spray of gray over there. <laughs> it's like nothing will do it. Job's at that place. He's seeing, he's seeing Psalm 8 in the opposite. It's as though he's saying, would you just give me a moment to swallow? Would you turn your gaze away from me just for a moment? What's the movie, Jim, Jim Caviezel, when um, he gets betrayed by his friend and ends up in dungeon prison? Uh, anybody remember? What is it? Mount of, Count of Monte Cristo. I can't remember my movies tonight. But he, he ends up, he gets... Uh, his friend betrays him, gets him thrown in, in dungeon, steals away his uh, fiance, And so he's in this dungeon. It's a horrible prison. How many of you have seen The Count of Monte Cristo? So he's there, and all he can think about is, if I ever get out of here, it's revenge, revenge, revenge. God will give me justice, you know. And he meets an old man. He's a preacher. And they, they get together in the prison, and he begins to teach him. And basically, at the end of the movie, when he's reunited with his fiancée after all these years, he basically says something similar to this, like, can I never escape him? And she says to him, he works in mysterious ways. Job says, would you just turn away so I could swallow? Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness, to deliver their soul from death, to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart rejoices in him because we trust in his holy name. Let, the loving kindness, let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according as we have. Psalm 33, 18 through 22. Usually this is a good thing, but Job asked God to turn away. And finally, he says, have I sinned, 20? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you set me as your target so that I'm a burden to myself? Watcher of men is an affirmative meaning of confidence in God, divine protection, but here Job employs it, employs it with scaling sarcasm. It's as though God has constant surveillance on Job. Job's got God's attention, but not in the way that he wants it. One writer says, Job feels like God's punching bag as if he goes to the gym to practice hitting me. Why am I your punching bag? Why have you set your gaze against me? Job says, I don't get it. Why then do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I will lie down in the dust and you will seek me, but I will not be. Are you watching Job start to turn into God? You, you see him turning a little bit, even though it's still dark. He's, he's saying, Lord, would you forgive me? Now, has Job sinned to deserve this? No. 
He didn't do anything specifically to deserve what happened. He doesn't know what's going on in the heavenlies between God and Satan. But Job is still a sinner in need of what? A savior. Because all of us have sinned. There is no man who does not sin. And Job says, he goes from not wanting to live to, would you forgive me? And do you know that the one that Job complains to the whole time during the book of Job is the one that's coming to rescue him. Because Jesus is God. And when Job is praying these prayers like, why? And I don't understand. And where have you gone? And why is your gaze against me in this way? Why do I suffer? Why do I got to bear these burdens? He's talking to one who is going to come to the planet and suffer even though he was completely innocent. Job can't know that right now. But Job is foreshadowing Jesus who will suffer for the sins of others. Three Hebrew words are used for sin here. And the words are, in verse 20, you have, I have sinned. In verse 21, you have transgression and iniquity. So kind of sin in its fullness there. And the word for forgive is a powerful word. Two words for forgiveness, actually. One means to pardon or to bear. The con- and then the second one is to bear the burden of the offender. I'm sorry, that's the first one. The second one is to take away. Here's what Jesus does. He bears our sin. He bore our sins at the cross in his body. And he takes our sin away. And Job says, why couldn't you just bear my sin and take it away? And if God could answer right now, he would say to Job, I will. I'm going to. I'm going to go to a cross. And your Redeemer does live, Job. We need a Savior. And maybe the book of Job, if you turn all the way to Hebrews 2, and the pastor promises we're done. Hebrews chapter 2. Maybe Job was written so we could get a little foretaste of what Jesus would suffer. I don't know if that's the fullness. I think it was written for us who are suffering as well. But this is Job 2. And Shane, if you can hear my voice, if you come on up, we're going to begin in verse 6 as we look at the one to whom Job is praying, it says this about him. Hebrews 2, 6 through 18, reading from the NIV. There's a place where someone has testified, Hebrews 2, 6, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels, you crowned him with glory and honor, put everything under his feet, in putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not to be subject, not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor, because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And bringing many sons to glory was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through what? Through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation. I will sing your praises. When we're with the Lord in heaven, Jesus may sing, uh, and I'm sure he has the greatest voice of all time, 
but the suffering one will be in the midst of the church who has suffered in some way bringing praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here I am I and the children of God, the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their, their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Father, thank you for the precious people here tonight. Thank you for your word. When we are in good times, we celebrate those, Lord, and when we are in hard times, I pray that they would drive us to you. Job is an extreme example, but it is an example of a believer who's wrestling with God. He hasn't lost his faith in God, but he has questions. He's a believer struggling to understand the power of the gospel in the problem of evil. And I pray tonight, Lord, that your people would find hope in the power of the gospel. That our God, the one to whom Job asked all these hard questions, was coming to save us, to suffer the righteous one for the unrighteous to bring us back to God. And I pray that those who are here, you administer your hope, your goodness, your grace. Renew their hearts, renew their hope. Help them to find hope again if they've lost that. Fill them afresh with your Holy Spirit. And if you're not a Christian tonight and you've not met Jesus as Savior and Lord, just cry out to him. Just say, Lord, I believe you died on that cross for me. I believe in your resurrection from the dead. I repent of my sin. And I receive you as my Lord, my Savior, my God, and my King. Pray it if it's you. I turn my life over to you. I want to be a worshiper. I want to walk with you, Lord. So show me your ways and change my heart and my life from the inside out. And Lord, for your precious people tonight, I just pray because you've written their names in your book of life that they would have confidence that love would cast out all fear and that you would just help us to enjoy each and every day you give us life in Christ. It's in his name we pray and all God's people said.